How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we'll make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to get your concentration on target, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have this opportunity to gather together in fellowship around your word, to study that which is infallible, that which is immutable, that which is unshakable, that in the midst of all of the changing circumstances of our lives, the uncertainties that lie on the horizon of our times, we know that your word stands sure. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that they might be a a factor in helping us understand what is going on in our own times as well as what your plans and purposes are for history. Pray that we'd have a greater appreciation and understanding of your grace. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is going to be a rocky year, I think, the year 2004 with our presidential election coming up. And already you can see how the liberals are mounting their assaults on the conservatives. And not that I am specifically taking a political stand on one person or another, but what we are seeing here is the result of the fragmentation in this country and the further deterioration as a result of the negative volition and arrogance that dominates this country. And what you are going to see in the coming months is just an increased polarization between those on the left and those on the right. And as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to be able to stand above all of it. There will be many things that happen in this political year, many things said, many things done, that you may easily allow to get you out of fellowship. But that's only because you're living in the circumstances and not looking at politics as you should from divine viewpoint. Divine viewpoint gives us the ability to stand above the fray and to objectively evaluate what's going on. There is no one candidate who is the, quote, Christian candidate. Even if a man is a believer, even if he's right in many ways, doesn't mean he's right in everything. Any candidate is going to have a lot of positions that uh, could be demonstrated to be uh, fallacious from one perspective or another. But this is going to be a year where you're going to see a lot of attacks that that uh, will demonstrate the real spiritual issues that underlie the political battle. Now, a lot of people think that politics somehow is neutral. Those people are blind and their head is buried deep in the sand. People who think that somehow Christianity 
does not impact what you do in policy, it does impact what you do in the voting booth, impact political thought, well, they have not thought very deeply or profoundly about things. And what happens in a nation, when that nation begins to operate apart from the Word of God, is you begin to see more and more polarization and radical things coming out. And today we see, we see a number of things going on just recently in the news. And, of course, one that took place this last year, towards the end of the year, was the removal of the Ten Commandments statue uh, down in the, the uh, uh, courthouse, Supreme Court courthouse down in Alabama. Now, I've made a few comments on that in the past in Bible class, but there's a couple of other comments that need to be made in light of what happened earlier this week. Some of you are who aren't too connected, and I mean on the Internet, are not aware that there's an, there is an Internet site called MoveOn.org, which is dedicated to removing uh, President George W. Bush from office. Now, that's fine. That's politics. But the way you go about these things is changing. And this is that organization that has promoted a couple of contests where they've come up with these, these uh, advertisements and political uh, commercials that have compared Bush to Hitler. And that really betrays the postmodern convictions of the left. And anybody who is postmodern is out of touch with reality. And so they think they can just come in and shape history to mean anything and, to, and they can uh, change anything around to fit whatever their uh, agenda is. Well, MoveOn.org had a contest earlier this week and awarded uh, – was giving awards to various uh, political uh, ads that had been entered into their contest to go against uh, the President Bush. And so they all the liberal Hollywood elite came out, and a number of stand-up comics took their pot shots. And there is one com- comedian, comedian by the name of Margaret Cho, who made the following comments. Now, this reveals, I mean, if you haven't awakened to the fact that there is a difference between, and I'm not saying political, I'm not saying Republican versus Democrat, but I'm saying between a conservative worldview, a conservative political worldview and a liberal political worldview, if you think you can be a Christian, a Bible-thinking Christian, a biblically-based Christian, thinking divine viewpoint, and be and have an orientation towards liberal politics, then you are living in your own fantasy land. You've moved from being neurotic, which is dreaming about your own fantasy castle, to being a psychotic where you're trying to live in your fantasy castle. And her routine on Monday night clearly demonstrates the underlying spiritual issues. In her routine, she says, for example... I'm quoting her. For example, Judge Roy Moore or Jay Moore, she, she can't even get his name right, or whatever in Alabama, uh, and then it's inaudible, and then the transcript goes on. Ten Commandment statues stay in the lobby of a courthouse. She said, quote, quoting the conservatives in a fake southern accent, she said, you can't move the Word of God. You cannot remove the Franklin Mint edition of the Word of God. See, in her assault on conservatives, she goes right to this issue on the Ten Commandments and an assault on the Word of God. And her whole routine, which was quite uh, profane, is an assault on uh, 
Christianity. She goes on to say, uh, people are protesting there and like, she, and I'm quoting her, people are protesting there and like, I think it could have been solved so much easier if they had just placed a golden calf next to the statue and then people would have started worshiping that. And then they could have moved the Ten Commandments to Bush's office where he needs them desperately. And then she went on to satirize the Ten Commandments and ridicule the president. She goes on to say, you know, you cannot impose your God on other people. And uh, George W. Bush is coming out with the weirdest stance on same-sex marriage as well. And she went on to say in her routine that you can't impose your God on other people. Uh, God is God. Allah is God. Buddha is God. Everybody's God is okay and wants to reduce everything to the same common denominator. So in that uh, comedic routine, and then she went on to say uh, about George W. Bush's stance on same-sex marriage, he, she, he said, uh, or she said, quote, what he says about it is, well, we're all sinners. And then Margaret Cho's response, no, we're not. Just because somebody ate an apple one time doesn't make us all sinners. And if it was from the tree of knowledge, I think she should have eaten more than one, possibly even baked a pie. Well, all of that is to show that what undergirds liberal philosophy, liberal theology, liberal political thought is what Thomas Sowell pointed out in his book, Conflict of Vision, uh, several years ago, is a rejection of the literal truth of Genesis 3 and the fall of man and the sinfulness of man and that there is a God to whom men are answerable. It's a rejection of absolute truth, and once you reject that, then anything goes. And it also betrays an ignorance of religious liberty and how it developed in this country. For example, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which was written in the 18th century and is a forerunner of the Bill of Rights, the Virginia Declaration of Rights affirms that, quote, religion or the duty which we owe to our Creator. Notice that terminology. The Creator-Creature distinction was clearly understood by our founding fathers. Religion or the duty which we owe to our Creator and the manner of discharging it can be directed only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. Notice that. It's a recognition that the Bible is the framework within their thought, and the Bible recognizes that God must be worshipped in spirit and truth. Therefore, Christianity can't be forced on anybody. But they understood that only from within the framework of Christianity could you guarantee religious liberty. Freedom is grounded only in a the creator God of the Scripture and an understanding of a creator-creature distinction. Uh, the statement in the Virginia Declaration of Rights goes on to say that it, uh, it's not by force or violence, and therefore all men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience, and that it is the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity towards each other. Now, in the light of modern liberal thought, we would have to get rid of that document because they were just a bunch of religious bigots. And that is how Satan works and how human viewpoint works, is it twists right into wrong and wrong into right. In his address at Hillsdale College, Michael Novak commented on the Virginia Declaration of Rights statement and said, quote, This summarizes the classic American definition of religion and the foundation for religious liberty. 
To this definition, some make one or more objections. For instance, some point out that Christians and Jews have not always respected this principle and thus try to discredit its Jewish and Christian origins. But human failure is no argument against the principle. Human weakness is measured by it. In other words, what he is saying is just because Jews and Christians didn't always practice this doesn't mean it didn't come out of the Judeo-Christian heritage, and it doesn't mean that they were right when they didn't understand it. But it was only from a Judeo-Christian vantage point that you ever developed a concept of religious liberty, not tolerance. One reason you have tolerance develop in a number of countries is because nobody has enough of a power base to really uh, destroy anybody else or dominate anybody else. So they just have to put up with everybody else. That is a totally different concept. That is a concept of tolerance. It's not a concept of religious liberty. He goes on to say, Second, one can say that among Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and others, there have been examples of generations of so-called tolerance. But tolerance is a different and less profound concept than the right to religious liberty. Tolerance may arise merely from a temporary lack of power to enforce conformity. It does not by itself invoke a natural right. The concept of religious liberty, on the other hand, depends on a particular conception of God, a particular conception of the human person, and a particular conception of liberty. And that is why it's important, as I've stated again and again, to have a to understand this creator-creature distinction in Genesis 1 through 11 and why a literal understanding of Genesis 1 through 11 changes how you look at life. It should change your whole viewpoint on everything from politics to law to understanding society to understanding marriage to understanding every element in life. And you can trace everything back to a person's understanding or lack of understanding of the principles embedded in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Well, now we come to that section in Genesis 6 where we see the breakdown of not just a culture, but a breakdown of a civilization, the first civilization, the antediluvian civilization. And we began studying this section last Wednesday night. In the first three verses, we saw the uh, foundation of the problem, actually in the first two verses. Verse 1 we read, Now it came to pass when man, or when mankind began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. We saw that this is uh, developing the, or it's a summary of the genealogy of Genesis uh, chapter 5. That <clears throat> verse 2 goes on to say that at this time as man, as mankind spread over the earth, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And here we looked at and spent the majority of our time trying to understand this term, sons of God. I pointed out that there were basically three options suggested by commentators over the years. The first is the idea, this is not in order of the way it was developed, but just in terms of a list, that the term sons of God and daughters of men related to two different groups of human beings, that the sons of God were actually godly sons or believers, and the daughters of men would be unbelievers. And I pointed out why that falls apart, and uh, uh, it would indicate a number of different things. For example, it would be only a one-way relationship, that is, uh, male believers and uh, female unbelievers. Secondly, it, the context 
that context avoids the fact that there were, by the time of Noah, only eight believers who survived. And so then sons of God would not apply to anyone else on the planet other than just Noah and his three sons. So if this interpretation were true, then you wouldn't have any male believers marrying any unbelievers by the last generation. So that would be inconsistent. Third, it doesn't make sense on the basis of word usage or on the basis of the use of sonship in the rest of the Old Testament. And then again, it really doesn't make sense in light of the uh, population at the time, which probably was between six and a half to seven billion people. The second option we saw was that the, some say the sons of God stand, or it was a term that stood for dynastic dictators or autocrats. And this term, of course, doesn't have a tremendous amount of support in the scriptures and is more speculative. Third view is the view that uh, I hold and is the view that we hold here at Preston City Bible Church, and that is that the term sons of God is a technical term for the angels. It's a broad category. It includes both fallen angels and elect angels. And in this case, because of the context, it refers to the fallen angels. Some people say, well, they quote Matthew 22:30 that Jesus said that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage, and that is talking about uh, the the elect angels. It's not talking about what demons do or can't do. Uh, other problems are raised about how uh, an immaterial body can produce material offspring, and I pointed out a number of passages where it clearly shows that angels, uh, angelic. Angels and demons have the ability or had the ability to turn or transform their immaterial body into a physical body that for all appearances had had material physical functions. They ate, they slept, they drank, and so it could be assumed that they could engage in uh, sexual activity as well. Then to support that, we looked at three different passages in the New Testament. We looked at Jude verses 6 and 7, which makes it clear by comparison that the sin at Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned in Jude 7 was in the same manner as these. Quote, that these referring to the angels who didn't keep their uh, proper uh, habitation in Jude 6. So the sexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was a reflection of the previous sin committed by the angels. And therefore, since the uh, sin at Sodom and Gomorrah was a sexual perversion, so the sin of the angels must have been a sexual perversion. Furthermore, we looked at Second Peter 2, 4, and 5, which states that if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, that's the same darkness mentioned in Jude uh, 6 and 7, that and that those who, those angels that sinned is connected to the time of Noah in Second Peter 2.5. If God did not spare angels when they sinned and did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others. First Peter 3.18 through 20 also connects the uh, spirits now in prison in First Peter 3.19 to a time of disobedience in the days of Noah. So when you put all of that together, it becomes clear that this reference to sons of God 
is a reference to fallen angels who took on or transformed their immaterial bodies into physical bodies and produced kind of a hybrid offspring that was no longer true humanity. It was a genetically defiled uh, offspring that was designed to pervert and pervert the seed of the woman and prevent the seed of the woman, that is the Messiah from coming, a Messiah who would be true humanity. Then we come to verse 3. Now, the implications of verse 3, I think, are profound. You don't see them in your English translation, not unless you have an NIV, and I hope by now I've discouraged most of you from using an NIV. NIV happens to translate this verb correctly, but that is because probably probably due to the fact that the man responsible for uh, the translation at this point was my Hebrew professor at Dallas Seminary, and he had it right. Verse 3 reads, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, this is where we get into a problem, is that verb strive. That verb strive is is an, what's called a hapax legomenon. It looks like this in the Hebrew, yadon. Y-A-D-O-N. That's a long O. Yadon. Now, remember, vowel points were inserted in the text late. They, Hebrews are consonantal vocab, I mean, consonantal alphabet. So, originally, this looked like this. So, there was a, uh, speculation that the root was made up of these two letters. And that would have been the root dean, which has to do with contention or striving. And so the, the original idea was that the word here had to do with contentiousness or striving, some situation such as that. However, current lexical scholarship recognizes that this word is not based in the previously thought word dean, but is a cognate of an Akkadian word and an Arabic word, both of which have the idea of remain, stay, or abide. The Hebrew Aramaic lexicon, which is the came out in about 97 or 98 and is the most up-to-date lexical study on Hebrew words, states that the meaning is simply this, to stay, to remain, or to abide. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's retranslate. Then Yahweh said, My spirit will not abide, will not stay, will not remain with man forever. Well, what would he be talking about? Remember, after the fall, man was excluded from access to Eden. Eden was the dwelling of God. There was a garden planted eastward in Eden, which is where God placed man as his representative to rule over the planet. When the fall came, the only thing that happened was the God established cherubs around Eden with flaming swords, and swords are a picture in Scripture 
of military power and judicial power, the power of life over death. And God established these cherubs around the, the around Eden to prevent man from coming into Eden. But it doesn't say anything. There's no suggestion that God is no longer present in Eden. In fact, you have a hint that God is still physically present on the earth in Genesis 5.24, where we read that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Where did God take him? Probably not to heaven, because that, remember, there no, no saints had access to heaven until the cross. Took him where? They probably just walked right into Eden. So this, the verb understanding here in Genesis 6.3 suggests that God is still directing in a, in a very directive way, in a very uh, personal way, the judicial function, judicial operation on the human race. God is still governing the planet, as it were, directly by his presence. My spirit shall not strive, shall not abide, shall, I mean, excuse me, my spirit will not remain with man forever. Now, what does he mean by my spirit? One suggestion has been that my spirit here is simply a circumlocution for my presence. However, ruach, for spirit, is never used in that way in the Old Testament. So it would be a reference to the Holy Spirit, even though it's a little more uh, subtle, than the reference in Genesis 1-2 where it talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. So apparently the Holy Spirit has a function in administrating the divine rule over the planet during this antediluvian period. And this explains why God has God delegates judicial authority to man after the flood. See, one of the perplexing things is that you have this civilization that arises with the creation of Adam. Well, not with the creation of Adam. Actually, once they're out of the garden, you have this civilization develop with the birth of Cain. And there are murders, but there's no judiciary. You don't have the delegation of capital punishment and judicial power until you get to Genesis uh, chapter 9. It's not until Genesis chapter 9 that you have with the, with the Noahic covenant, the delegation of judicial power. There's no judiciary or judicial function from the fall to the flood. So who's governing things? Well, the implication here is that God, specifically the third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, is the one who is operating here on the planet. That is why this is seen as, as one form of the, the God's theocratic kingdom evident on the earth. And God removes his presence from the earth at the time of the flood. And once God removes his presence, there has to be some sort of judicial authority. So he then delegates that judicial authority to man. So this is a warning in verse 3. My spirit shall not abide or remain with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And here the word uh, for flesh is the Hebrew word basar. Basar, B-A-S-A-R. 
and it is the an indication of mortal flesh. B-A-S-A-R. And it's emphasizing the mortality of man. It's saying man is his man is in, indeed flesh or he's indeed mortal, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. So God is giving man one hundred and twenty years of warning. This is the principle of grace before judgment. God never brings harsh judgment without a warning and without giving grace ahead of time, giving an opportunity to respond to his overtures of evangelism and the teaching of the word. Then we get into verse 4. In verse 4 we see the specifics of what's, what happens during these generations between Adam and Noah. There were giants on the earth in those days. So the King James translates this with the term giants. Now, in one sense, that's correct, but it's misleading here. The Hebrew word is Nephilim. The Hebrew word is Nephilim. N-E-P-H-I-L-I-M, Nephilim. Now, this word is used one other place in Scripture. So in order to understand this, I think it's important for us to look at this one other passage because somebody always brings this up because they get confused. Turn to Numbers 13.33. Numbers 13.33. Now, the context of Numbers 13 is that the 12 spies have gone into the land of Canaan in order to see how they are going to take the Canaanites. Their mission was not to see if they could, but to just get the lay of the land to go on a recon mission. Unfortunately, they misunderstood their orders, and they came back, and they began to complain that they couldn't accomplish the task. They forgot that God had already promised them the land. They weren't there to see if they could do it, but in order to just check things out to see how they were going to do it. And they returned, and they gave a report, and ten of the spies are, are crying and moaning about, oh, it's just going to be too difficult. And in verse 32, they said, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. Then we saw giants, that is, Nephilim. And they are described as the descendants of Anak came down from uh, from the giants, from the Nephilim. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So these are the sons of Anak. Incidentally, the sons of Anak are eventually... Uh, most of them are killed. The, the few remnants head down to a city called Gath in Philistia, and Goliath comes out of Gath. He is one of these descendants from Anak. He is a giant. Now, 
Let's understand this a little bit. People say, well, aren't the Nephilim this half-breed monster produced by the, by the uh, interbreeding of the, of the uh, demons with the humans? Yes, they are. But let's understand the terminology a little bit. Put up a timeline here. X is going to mark the event of the flood somewhere around, oh, uh, let's just, it's around 2800 B.C., I think. I'll work up the precise dates a little later on, but it's somewhere around 2800 B.C. That's the time of the flood. Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldees in approximately 2000 B.C. The Exodus occurs in 1446 B.C. So the initial conquest in Numbers 13 is taking place and about 1444 B.C., they spent a year at Sinai, and then it took them a while to get up there, so let's say 1445, 1444 B.C. In 1444 B.C., they have a word that they use to describe giants. It's Nephilim. Now, remember, in 1445 B.C., Genesis hadn't even been written yet. So this is their their terminology for these giants. Now, there's a couple of ways that we can handle this. One way is that this word was used to apply to these, to the contemporary monsters of 1444 B.C. because it reminded them of the stories they heard about what happened back in 2800 B.C. And so when Moses writes in 1440 B.C., when he's writing Genesis, he's going to use terminology that is current to his generation that is going to help them understand what these guys look like before the flood. So he's using a contemporary term to describe something that nobody there had seen, they had never seen or heard or seen pictures of anything like what what happened before the before the flood. So he's using a a 14th or 15th century BC term to describe these monsters before the flood. Then the other way to look at it is that the term Nephilim was a technical term for a for these monsters before the flood, and the monsters in 1440 reminded them of the Nephilim, and so they applied the term there. So it's hard to tell which is the type and which is the prototype here. Is is the is the prototype the pre the, the Genesis six monsters that the mon, that the giants in 1440 reminded them of? Or were the giants in 1440 the prototype that they're comparing back to the uh, monsters before Genesis 6? In other words, don't get wrapped around the axle that Nephilim is a technical term for half-demon, half-human. The word itself, etymologically, is related to, uh, or probably related to one of, one particular or two particular Hebrew uh, words. The first is uh, nephel, 
N-E-P-H-E-L. And that word would mean a, would refer to a birth or a miscarriage. And so the idea here is that this is talking about this production of superhuman monstrosities in this birth process. It could also be related, although this is more of a long shot, to the Hebrew noun pool, P-U-L, in which case it would have to do with might or strength. But most scholars go for the former, that it had to do with the, the fact that they were such monstrosities when they were born, and that's because they were not true, not pure human. They were this this mixed breed. So the term Nephilim itself is not a term that has as its core semantic meaning a half-breed, half-demon, half-angel. It just refers to some sort of a of a monstrosity. And so it can be applied to any monstrosity. And so it's applied to this production from the sons of God, the demons, and the daughters of men. So in verse 4 we read that Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. See, there's the phrase you have to pay attention to. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people teach this verse and they just skip past that phrase. In the, in the Hebrew, it's ken asher, and also after which, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So the when the sons of God modifies the days. So the phrase and also afterward is going to tie in Nephilim. They're monsters on the earth in those days and they're monsters on the earth in these days. He's writing to the Jews. And he is, the reason he adds this is to show that just as God took care of the what? The giants, the monsters in that antediluvian civilization and wiped them all out through the flood. Jews, listen up. You're going to go into the land. You're going to run into Nephilim, and guess what God's going to do to them? Same thing. Don't worry about it. The battle is the Lord's. So once you start interpreting the Scripture in the light of the time in which it was written, suddenly a lot of things make a lot of sense and become clear. So the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And in that statement, what he is alluding to is the fact that in most ancient Near Eastern cultures, in fact, in many cultures around the world, as they uh, uh, developed their various pantheons and mythologies, they had stories about gods who came to earth and raped or intermarried or just took human girlfriends and had a product of half-human, half-god offspring. Now, those mythological stories, like the stories of Hercules and many others that you find in classic Roman and Greek mythology, you also find it in Babylonian mythology, Egyptian mythology, Canaanite mythology... This this offspring is a this is this whole story these all these stories are just a vague distorted memory of what happened in Genesis six where these demons came to earth and uh, were interbreeding with humans so that they could destroy the genetic purity of the human race. 
Then we come to Genesis 6, verse 5. See, all of this has a tremendous impact because it is man's sinfulness gone awry. Genesis 6, 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And this emphasizes the fact that man is fallen. All human beings are corrupt by Adam's original sin. This is what is referred to by the, as the doctrine of total depravity. Now let's think about total depravity a little bit and try to understand what it is and what it is not. This is an important study today because it has tremendous implications for understanding uh, salvation and the elements in elements in the lordship free grace controversy. First of all, let's understand the term depravity comes from the Latin word depravare which basically means to prevert. It is the DE prefix, which is intensive, plus the root prevus, which means crooked. So it's the idea of being completely crooked or corrupt. Now, total depravity has been brought into theology, and it has a history and a controversy. Some people don't like it because they think that total depravity means that man is all bad. And it sounds as if man is as bad as he can be. Total depravity doesn't mean man is as bad as he can be. Actually, it means that man in all of his aspects, that's the total idea, all of man, his both his material and immaterial parts, all of his components have been corrupted by Adam's original sin so that man can do nothing to gain or acquire God's approval. Man can't do anything to produce perfect righteousness. He is minus R, and he can't do anything to acquire plus R. He is fallen. Now, this is backed up by a number of scriptures. For example, Psalm 39, 5. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is vanity. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So the Bible clearly teaches in numerous places that man is fallen and affected by sin. Ephesians 2, 1, We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We have many fine, historically, we have many fine definitions of total depravity. For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was a statement of of, uh, doctrine, a doctrinal statement put together by Puritans, Calvinists, in 17th century England. And I'm going to quote from Article 6 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, three paragraphs, just to show you how well they defined it. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Paragraph 3, they being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed. And the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. 
Paragraph 4, from this original corruption whereby we are all utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to evil, proceed actual, do proceed at, at all actual transgressions. This is a very sound definition of total depravity. Others have defined total depravity like this, quote, total depravity means that the natural man is never able to do any good that is fundamentally pleasing to God and, in fact, does evil all the time. Now, that's as good as far as it goes. I think some of these definitions can be tightened up a good bit. Uh, what do you mean by by good? See, man is never able to do anything that gains God's approval. Let's define good as positive righteousness, perfect righteousness. Let's not just use words like good and evil in some sort of generic sense. I think it's important to refine the definition. We must say that total depravity means that man is born physically alive and spiritually dead. In spiritual death, every aspect of man's being, physically and immaterially, has been corrupted by sin so that man on his own is unable to do anything to merit God's approbation. And I want to emphasize that. That is the key word. We can't do anything to merit God's approbation. We can't, uh, we can't gain it. We can't merit His favor. Now, the important point here is that in Calvinism, among a lot of hyper-Calvinists, they want to intensified total depravity into what they call total inability. And I don't want to take the time, and it goes beyond our purposes, to quote a lot of Calvinists to substantiate this, but I'll quote one. The Bible stresses the total inability of fallen man to respond to the things of God. He's not able to do so. This is what the Calvinist refers to as total depravity. See, he defines it as man can't respond well, that's that's vague. What do you mean he can't respond? He can't respond negatively or he can't respond positively? He can't respond positively. He can't respond negatively. Response is, uh, is too ambiguous in that definition. And what they and but of course that's the problem is that by putting it that way and saying man can't do anything, Godward. Now there is a vast difference between saying God, man can't do anything Godward and man can't do anything meritorious in God's direction. And that is an important distinction to bring out because this underlies the whole issue in understanding volition and faith. Because the real battle is in understanding faith and where the merit is. Is the merit, I'm going to write this here on the board, faith. Is the merit in the faith or is the merit in the object of the faith? And if you're saying that man can't do anything, include exercise positive volition towards God, what you're saying is that positive volition towards God is meritorious. And if positive volition towards God is meritorious and faith is meritorious, then you have to end up making faith the gift in Ephesians 2.89. God has to give you faith. And that doesn't fit exegetically, and we've gone through Ephesians 2.89 to demonstrate that. 
many times. But let me show you how this works itself out. For example, in the same doctrinal statement I quoted from earlier, the Westminster Confession of Faith, we read the following paragraph about justification. I'm going to read the whole paragraph. The kicker's in the last line, though. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. Now, there's some problems in that because in, in Calvinism it's not just Christ's death on the cross, it is also his life of obedience. And so that's, there's some problems in that terminology. But their la- the last line is what gives it away. They receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. And they quote Ephesians 2, 7 to 8, uh, supporting that. So you see, theology hangs together. And if you start off with total inability and you define it in such a way that man can't even have positive volition towards God, what you've got embedded in that, that nobody's pulling out of the closet, is that you've made positive volition meritorious. And if that's meritorious, you're going to make faith meritorious. And then faith becomes a gift. And God has to not only die on the cross for you, but he also has to give you faith and give you the understanding. He has to give you everything, and that makes you makes man a robot, and volition is irrelevant. And as the Scriptures teach, man has responsibility, which implies volition. Man, does, God doesn't save man because of volition. He saves man because of what Christ did on the, on the cross. And when man exercises faith, which is non-meritorious, then God makes that faith effective for salvation by imputing Christ's perfect righteousness to the believer and saves them on the basis of that imputation imputed righteousness not on the not because of their faith but if you're going to go the lordship route then you're going to end up making faith meritorious and the cause of salvation and actually, that is an issue of how you understand the will. It's not an issue of understanding depravity. The Bible is clear that man is born totally depraved. He is incapable of saving himself or doing anything meritorious toward God. That is our understanding so that Genesis 6-5 is expressing the consequences of total depravity in the human race, in the antediluvian civilization, as it worked itself out in that time. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. It spreads throughout the whole earth that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It is a historical description. It is not a prescriptive statement about all of mankind everywhere, because there's a contrast here with Noah. And the Lord, then we get into verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, 
and he was grieved in his heart. Now, this is a difficult verse to understand because there are two anthropompathisms and one anthropomorphism. Now, remember, let's get some definitions. An anthropomorphism is language of accommodation. Let me write it up on the board for you. We've gone over this a lot, so this what I'm giving you tonight should be a lot of review. Anthropomorphism. Anthropopathism, A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-P-A-T-H-I-S-M. An anthropomorphism, first of all, is language of accommodation that ascribes to God human physical characteristics, which God does not actually possess in order to reveal and to explain his infinite essence, his policy, and his sovereign decisions in terms of human anatomy, so that the finite mind of man can comprehend these policies and plans. For example, the Scripture talks about the face of God, the eyes of God, the ears of God, and the arms of God. An anthropopathism has to do with emotion. And this is, again, language of accommodation or a figure of speech that ascribes to God human passions, emotions, thoughts and attitudes which he does not actually possess in order to reveal and explain his, his, his essence, his policy, his plans, and his sovereign decisions uh, to the finite mind of man. Now, the first anthropopathism is the Lord was sorry. At least that's how it's translated now in the New King James Version. I think the Old King James Version said that it repented God that he had made man. I don't know how other versions translate this, but the verb here that is translated sorry is does mean that in some context. It's the Hebrew word nakam. N-A-C-H-A-M. And Naham means, in the, is, well, here it's in the Nifal stem, which is the passive stem. The cow is the active stem. Nifal is the passive form of the cow. means to comfort, to be sorry, to sorrow, to be moved to pity, to have compassion. It also means to regret or to be remorseful. Now, the question is, is the Lord sorry he made man? Is the Lord just saying, oh, I'm just so sorry I made all these. Look at how they messed up the whole planet. Is he remorseful? You know, did this surprise God? Remember, God's omniscient. He's known this from eternity past. He's, he's already got a plan for this. We see a similar context in Exodus 32.14 where after the Jews have had the golden calf incident and God wants to destroy them and uh, Moses prays and, and God changes his mind and for Moses, he's, we read, so the Lord relented, there they translated it relent, from the harm which he said he would do his people. And the idea here is that, of course, we've seen that in our study of prayers, that prayer changes things, and Moses' prayer was built on doctrine, and God could easily have... Uh, destroyed the people, and Moses would have survived, and Moses is of the descendants of of uh, Abraham, and so uh, God could have gone on with that plan. But Moses argued theologically from doctrine that the Lord should 
preserve the people, so the Lord did. It doesn't mean the Lord changed. It's a figure of speech to express to express it in ways that we can understand what's going on here. Because in Numbers 23:19 we read, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. And there's our word, nacham. So God is not literally changing his mind. God is not literally sorry. God is not literally remorseful. It, this terminology, this, this imagery is used because that communicates to us this sort of a change. So it is showing that the Lord in his, in his justice is uh, condemning man for what he has done. Now, that's an anthropopathism. Then we come to another anthropopathism. He was grieved in his heart. He was grieved. This is the Hebrew verb atzav. Looks like this. A-T-Z-A-V, atzav. And here it is in the uh, hispael stem atzav. It's a verb of mental discomfort. Here it's an hithpael imperfect with the vav consecutive. It's a third person masculine singular. The root meaning of the cow stem is to hurt, to pain. It's it's as a noun. It's hurt, pain, grieve. The noun is the idea of toil. In the hithpael, it means to vex. In the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon, we have the meaning to be deeply worried. Is God deeply worried? Is God just wringing his hands over this? Is God see this is this is poetic imagery here to to communicate the distress this brings to the justice of God. His righteousness has been violated and his justice must bring judgment upon man. And so this kind of imagery is used here. And then we read he was grieved where in his heart. Does God have a heart? This is the Hebrew word lave. Does God have a heart? No, he doesn't have a heart. Not in the sense of a physical organ that pumps blood through his body. But heart is, in fact, heart is never used of a physical organ pumping blood through the body in the Old Testament. There's not one instance of it used in that way. It's always used in a figurative sense, to refer to something that is in the middle, something that's in the center of something, that's in the midst of something, the, the core of an idea. And so the idea here is in God's essence, in his righteousness and justice, in his integrity, his righteousness has been violated, so his justice must condemn man. And that's the issue in the flood. It is a picture of God's judgment on sin. And it is a, also a picture of God's salvation. So in verse 7 we read, So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and the birds of the air. For I am sorry, there's that word nacham again, for I am sorry that I have made them. Again, we have that anthropopathism. It expresses the, the, the change in God's plan that now he is going to judge the planet. Now, keeping your place there in Genesis 6, if we go back to Genesis 1, we see very similar verbiage. Genesis 1.27. Now, in 
Genesis 6, 7, we read, So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. That is bara, the word that is specifically reserved to express divine creation. This is the word that's used three times in Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God is the unique creator of man. Then in verse 28 of Genesis 1, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the what? Fish of the sea, birds of the air, living things that move on the earth. So what do we have in Genesis 6-7? I will destroy man both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air. Everything but the fish mentioned is being destroyed. Now, why is it that because of man's sinful decision, animals and nature are destroyed? You see, we have to understand that there's a connection. We can't get wrapped up in this kind of platonic idealism that affects people's thinking too much, that if you sin, it just affects something to do between you and God and nothing else. Sin affects nature. Man's sin changed nature, changed the physical world, and even the sin, the corruption between the demons before Genesis 6, the corruption of those demons and the corruption of the human race meant that God had to not just wipe out all of mankind, he had to judge nature so that the world that exists after the flood is vastly different from the world that existed before the flood. He changed the entire rules of the game, as it were. He changed the entire environment of the angelic conflict by wiping out that antediluvian civilization. And then in contrast to these words of judgment, we have salvation mentioned in verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is again, what? An anthropomorphism. Does God have eyes? No. It is a picture of his omniscience. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first mention of grace in It's not the first expression of grace, but it's the first specific mention of the word grace in Genesis. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and it is going to be through Noah that God is going to deliver the human race. And this then becomes a picture of salvation and a picture of how there is only one way of salvation. There was only one ark. There was only one way into the ark. There is only one cross, and there's only one way to gain that salvation, and that's by faith alone in Christ alone. God's salvation is always exclusive. It excludes people. There's only one way. God doesn't say there's a lot of different ways to me, and there's a lot of different gods. He says there's only one way, and that is the way that I designate, and there's only one proper way to enter into that salvation. And so Noah is going to be the source of salvation of the human race, and he's the greatest ecologist in all of human history because it is Noah's deliverance of the animals that preserves the animal kingdom to rebuild on the plant, rebuild uh, the animal kingdom on the planet after the flood. Now, when I get back from Kiev, we'll get into the next section, which is going to be a lengthy and challenging study on 
the judgment, salvation of the flood, and all of the dynamics of the flood, and how that sets everything up for the current post-Diluvian civilization, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by this observation of what you did in this previous civilization, to see the effects of man's sinfulness as it destroys culture, destroys civilization, destroys his environment, and that the only solution is your solution. The only solution begins with faith alone in Christ alone and extends to learning Bible doctrine, making it a part of our thinking, assimilating it into our souls, and then applying it on a day-by-day basis. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.